0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Geekdom Underground podcast. We're super stoked to be here again. I think it's episode 17, eight, eight, 18? 18? I think it's 18, episode 18. I think it
1: is 18. Wow, It is! Well, right now it is. It is, for sure.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, we're excited to be interviewing yet another amazing member of our community, but before we start talking to this amazing individual, it's your boy J.R.G., holding it down with...
1: What's going on, everybody? Good morning. My name is Philip Hernandez. I'm COO here at Geekdom. Super pumped for today's episode of Geekdom Underground, and today we have an awesome Geekdom member. Adam Dusenberry, the founder of White Cloud.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate you guys having me here. Awesome. Awesome. Um, So, Adam, if you could, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from? Sure thing. So my name is Adam Dusenberry, and I am the founder of White Cloud. We are a video production company here that was actually founded here at Geekdom in 2016. Hey! Yeah, Yeah, that's cool. cool. Yeah, Yeah, that's awesome. So five years. We just hit our five-year birthday mark as you guys hit your 10 years. So pretty exciting to kind of share that uh, momentous highlight of our venture. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, a little bit about me. Um, I literally went to high school here in, in San Antonio, went to college and worked out in California. I learned a little bit about uh, actually education through the video lens. So Mm. uh, I actually got my master's in um, in education through instructional technology. So one of my biggest things that I was really kind of chasing after is before literally virtual learning was a thing that was a part of my thesis. And so I learned very quickly on how to educate people by creating video for them. And, uh, fast forward, you know, 10 years later when a lot of accessible and affordable components came on the market, I just felt like this is something that I wanted to do as a hobby. And, uh, lo and behold, now it's actually a full-time business. It's Man, pretty cool. That's awesome. So, uh, you said you went to high school in San Antonio. Were you, is that where you were born? Were you from here? No, actually I was born in Lynchburg, Virginia, out East. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Okay. I got transferred down here with just following my dad's job and just got a hopscotch back and forth between Dallas and San Antonio and decided to come down here and, Finish out of high school, and yeah. Right on. And what part of California did you go to? Uh, it was uh, University of Redlands. It's about an hour east of LA. Oh,
1: okay. Yeah. Awesome. How was it?
2: Is that where you got into uh, doing video and production and stuff? You know, uh, ironically, um, it, yes, uh, d- to, to be frank, my senior year of college, we had this, what they called an interim semester, and the interim semester was just a, a month-long semester, but it was only one class that we could choose. And uh, since uh, University of Redlands did not actually have a film or broadcasting degree, they did have some of these ancillary classes that we could take. And since I was already kind of loaded up with everything that I already needed, I figured, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and try to take uh, take this course, have fun, just blow off my senior year and just, you know, take this course and have have a good time. And so the cool thing is, is that two USC professors uh, were adjunct professors at that university at that time. And, um, The whole course was built around what's, what's one film that resonated well with us, with our personal story in our life, and how can you translate that into your own film? Hmm. And so one of the movies that really inspired me was, uh, I don't know if you guys are really dating me, but um, it was uh, Sliding Doors by, uh, I can't remember the director's name, but Gwyneth Paltrow was in it. And it was basically a story that was built around one decision that that person made. And it split off into two different stories. And there were parallel stories. And as these parallel stories were taking off, it would switch back and forth describing, you know, one where you're ultra successful, but it ends horrible. One where you go into like this really bad rut, but it ends up like way better than it ever began. Hmm. And that really kind of resonated well with me because that's something that's, I kind of felt during the time that I was deciding whether to be a professional swimming coach or go into a field that wasn't in sports and athletics. And uh, it was just kind of ironic that 10 years later in 2011, moved back to Texas, uh, decided to link up with a, uh, a nonprofit to do a lot of communications and marketing work for him and just kind of found that that's probably one of the weakest and most... How do I say this? It is the one department that most nonprofits cannot afford because they don't have budgets designed for that specific thing. For yeah. sure. And so I just kind of felt like my skill set really kind of added to that. Yeah. And uh, the cool thing is, is I just started taking some photos and videos, creating these small little vignettes now that Facebook and social media was a big hit and that was an easy, organic way for nonprofits to be able to broadcast their mission and vision. This was just a perfect way to be able to sharpen my skill sets and decide that, you know what, this is something that I could really, really utilize and and, and kind of jump on with. And of course, at that same time, that's exactly well, right around 2010, 2011. That's when drones became more of an affordable, accessible tool for either hobbyists or even cinematographers and videographers and photographers. And not to get too long-winded, but one of the things that uh, Elizabeth and I, uh, Elizabeth Reiser, uh, my my COO, we were kind of discussing this earlier. Discussing this earlier, uh, what really kind of got me into the drone aspect of things and how we really kind of bridge the whole media package around that. And I don't know if you guys have ever been to the Tower of Americas recently. Yeah, but sure. The whole lobby area is just littered with all these old aerial photos of the construction of not just San Antonio, but of the actual Tower of Americas. Oh, wow. Oh, Oh, that's sweet. It's super cool and super inspiring. And of course, as most people who... First come to San Antonio, that's obviously one of the most iconic places to at least go visit and explore. Right, And that was one of the things that really kind of, again, hit me pretty hard because I thought, how cool is it in the year, at that time, 2011, look back a 100 years and look at some of these old photos from when planes were just becoming planes, taking Mm -hmm. photos of downtown San Antonio in 1911. I thought, I'd love to be able to do that someday. Yeah. Documenting the history of the urban development of society and culture and everything. And again, that just you know, hit me in the feels and I really wanted to be able to do something like that. And of course when drones became more affordable and accessible, strapped a, an old GoPro Hero 3 on it <laughs> and started taking photos. That's and awesome. Telling Elizabeth, that was actually one of the first photos I took with a drone was the Tower of America's in 2011, 2012. And then uh when you know, people started to ask me, Can you come out and take photos for me? Can you take videos for me? And I started doing a lot of weddings for a lot of friends at the time. That again, really forced me, it thrusted me into the media world of understanding how to run and gun, how to quickly edit, how to how to edit really. Yeah. And how to just do all of the post production work in, in the whole media industry now that we we see on social media and see on commercials and videos. But uh yeah, I thought that was kind of cool because now I'm actually doing that. I'm actually documenting history of downtown San Antonio, not just using the drone, but using all of our media equipment uh, to tell San Antonio's story, to tell all of the people who live here and their businesses st- stories. So uh, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, so, that
1: yeah, that's super rad. I um, I I remember that time. I don't exactly remember like wh- what date or like year it happened, but I remember. Uh, we both dabble in photography and videography, and I remember like when drones really hit the consumer market, and like, like the it was cool to like control something that would fly. But what was cooler from like a videographer, or photographers perspective, is the perspective. Like you just couldn't get those those shots, especially like you know maybe you can get an aerial shot but not like an aerial shot like swooping down into a close up and stuff like that
0: or even like in film or like documentary filmmaking you would need a helicopter like you yeah. like if, if to get those perspectives views and shots it was very expensive yeah. just like not just the camera but to like get someone get someone to get you up in the air
1: absolutely yeah. and that's really cool to think about and like reflect on when you're looking at those old photos in the the tower that like man you could do that today with all the tech that you need for that fits in like your hoodie and yeah back then like if you think about everything that that they would need that was a super innovative shoot
2: it's amazing <laughs> to, yeah. to, it's to amazing. do at that time yeah that's awesome and to fast forward 100 years from now to think about the architects of the future to look back at the things that we're documenting right now with the tools that we have and the technology that we have at our diso- at our disposal i think it's just For us, it's pretty cool. We were actually just contracted by uh, Pew Constructors, who are also the main construction company that is renovating all of the San Antonio missions. They are tasked with documenting and upkeeping. So for the past virtually three to four months, we've been going over to the Alamo at nighttime, because that's the only time that they can actually work and photograph these guys in action as they are renovating certain parts of the whole Alamo grounds. And from my understanding and and I could be wrong on this but I was told that we were the first professional photography company allowed inside the church part to take professional photography of things that they're doing to the ceiling to the walls to everything Dang. so super cool to know that our photos are actually going to be a part of history for future generations yeah preservationist of the future yeah. to keep all these things going yeah so that's huge one day that's there's cool. going to be
1: a, another adam that's that's looking at and your photo that's, that's crazy like, <laughs> i want to do that and, but yeah it's going to be inspiring i get inspired when i see any of your work and like even like the stuff that you're like oh yeah here's some b-roll and i'm like dude that looks amazing but that's awesome. yeah yeah nice. that's great um so uh, there's a lot that you said there that I want to go back to but before we do that what when you you talked about how like um you really got into videography a little bit later in life like in your college years mm-hmm. um so did you ever dabble in like film or anything like or did you did you take pictures as a kid or anything
2: yeah it, it's a good question so when i was in college um i was a part of the swim team and i was that guy with a camera at every event, at mm-hmm. every swim meet, at nice. everything. And it got to the point where it was somewhat nauseating for my teammates just because the camera was always attached to me. <laughs> yeah. And I just wanted to document everything. I never hit yeah. cut. I just rolled, ran out of tape, ran out of battery, just kept going, kept going. And then at the very end of the season or end of the school year, we would just play everything like we're ho- watching old home movies like a lot of us used to do. Yeah, And that was just something that, again, my family had always cherished and, and really kind of made important for every Christmas and every New Year's. Let's just watch old home movies. Well, I wanted to do that with the people that I cared about the most. And that's really, again, another thing that really translated into my future professional years of understanding how can I give you guys, how can I give my clients, how can I give the people who I care about the most something that they can use as a memento for future years and generations and not just a photo or video, but something that really, really hits you in the feels. And again, that's That's something I really, really pride myself on. Yeah, that's awesome. How did
1: you um so I know that drones is a big part of history for White Cloud. It is. Um, so how did you get into how did you make that transition from like holding the camera and having like that much control to like being okay with a camera being attached to something hundreds of feet in the air?
2: (laughs) Yeah, great question. It was actually almost and it's, it's cool that you asked this because it's this something I definitely want to try to explain because there are very few videographers, very few creatives who do this kind of process backwards. Like me, um, I started out using drones or a drone like device to capture and document and, and archive photography and video before I started to do and learn really, really hardcore traditionally, you know, traditional ground equipment. Um, 1992, 14 years old, buddy and I went out, built uh, model rockets, and we strapped little, I don't know if you guys can recall the names of the little old codex where you, little, you pull the pin and it takes a, a quick snapshot. Well, we hooked one of those up to the model rockets, fired up 100 feet. Once that nose pops off for the parachute, it would just take a picture of whatever the world looked like at that point. Dang, that's awesome. We love doing that. Yeah, that was like our whole summer during the time, <laughs> you know, yeah. before I was mature enough to, to drive and, and actually have a life. But, uh, (laughs) but that's really something that I really wanted to try to do is try to find a way to put a camera on something that I could control flying. And so my uncle, who is the ultimate geek, nerd, technologist, futurist, I mean, his whole basement is just littered with things that you would never, ever see out on the market, but you could see in like some sort of post-apocalyptic type world. (laughs) You just have like these, these radios and these TVs fused together. And I asked him, is there any way that you could just build me an RC helicopter or just something that flies so I can strap a darn camera to it. And I just want to see the world from a, from a bird's eye view. Yeah. And so he did. uh, But the irony is I was about 16 years old doing stupid 16 year old things. My parents encouraged him. I was like, don't give it to him yet. He's really (laughs) not mature enough. It's, I mean, if this thing does not control itself the way that it, it could really, really damage some things or badly hurt someone, so he held off on it, but, um, so I never had that chance to be able to play with some sort of remote controlled aerial device. And then of course, in 2010, when DJI came out with the first, uh, actually it was parrot, uh, parrot drones back in 2006, 2007, I was a swimming coach at the time. That's when GoPro was just starting to get out and about These yeah. little small action cameras. Uh, I thought this is an awesome opportunity to be able to get a different angle from a different perspective for people that may find this interesting. And uh, at the swimming club that I was working at, um, it was pretty well world renowned. And so uh, you had a lot of big broadcasting companies that would come in and, and do their things year round. And so I took this styrofoam-like drone, put literally the original GoPro hooked up to it, started to fly it. It's not balanced. It's not. I mean, it's not <laughs> built for this. This thing was maybe two, three foot up in the air and just came down, crash. And I'm like, ah, oh, that would have been a, such a cool perspective to have, and it yeah. just completely failed. Well, One of the NBC guys came over, it's like, I see what you're doing, give it a few years, we're all gonna have them. I'm like, dude, I hope, man, I can't wait. Yeah. Since I was 16 years old to have My this. My uncle's thing. got this thing, in garage. Garage. <laughs> he's got one that actually flies a human being in it right now, it's like years ahead. But uh, but yeah, that was one of the things that's like, man, I just really, really hope and hope and hope. And of course, in 2011, came back to Texas, yeah, DJI came out with their first drone, it was like $1,500 on Amazon. Uh, strapped a GoPro up to it, which everyone at the time was doing. And like, this is exactly what I've been wanting to do. And so I took a ton of photos and I I have, yeah, gigabytes worth of old stuff of downtown San Antonio and a ton of weddings. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Was it everything that you hoped it would be? It is now. It is Um, now. (laughs) It is now. I I think uh, in the beginning, um, it was just, it was, it was a toy
0: Mm -hmm. and it was,
2: uh, what, you know, at the time, all my friends and family were saying it's like, "Oh, Adam, that's cool," but what are you going to do with it? It's like I'm going to make a business out of it. Like, all right, good luck. You know, and that's of course when the FAA was coming in and figuring out, and now all of these consumer-like type drones are coming on the market. How can we how can we regulate all of these things, mm-hmm. and how can we really help certify the ones that are taking it serious versus the ones that aren't and may possibly be doing it for nefarious reasons? Of course, YouTube was popular back then too so a lot of people were just posting this random content where they were flying them into buildings they were flying them into people they were hurting people i'm like why are you strapping guns to them strapping like all of the bad things you can think about was
1: happening so i remember those things yeah yeah. and that and that was like when people were trying to become viral and like up up each other yeah Yeah, one up each other and stuff mm -hmm. and
2: and but uh the good thing is it actually forced the government to like literally put their foot down and say, this is how we're going to do things. Uh, The good and bad thing is that the government actually asked people who have been a part of the industry for a long time, who have been flying remote controlled helicopters with cameras attached to them, asking them, what would be the best rules in place to help mitigate and, you know, hopefully consolidate Uh, the the best way moving forward with this. And so thankfully they actually asked industry experts to come in to be consultants on devising some sort of policy and procedures on how to move forward. So in 2015, that's actually when they start when the FAA actually imposed uh, a a certificate rule where if you want to actually operate um, in the United States as a business flying a UAV, an unmanned aerial vehicle or a UAS unmanned aerial system, uh, then you have to get certified. You have to take a test Got to pay for it. Got to pass it, and of course you got to be in compliance with all airworthiness uh, to show that you understand all of that fun stuff, so you don't do anything stupid. There's yeah, some people <laughs> do.
1: So. Yeah, I know. I uh, anytime I see a video with some weird drone things, I always bring it up to you, and you've always seen it. Like, <laughs> uh, like there was one where like the I think it was like a commercial plane was flying, and then like a drone went right by, and like <sighs> you know, but but it's crazy because now. I mean, anybody can just buy those and right and fly them. How do you, uh, how do you keep like responsible and keep all your like make sure that you're doing all the right things? Because like me, as somebody who's not educated in drones, mm-hmm. if I see you and say I don't know you, but if I see you like in Legacy Park and you fire up a drone and then you're going like between buildings and doing all that stuff, like I may be like, "Whoa, I, maybe I could just go do that." Um, but how do you cover all your bases to make sure you're doing it responsibly?
2: Sure. You know, just keeping up with the FAA website, thankfully they've actually built a dedicated portal, uh, drone zone where anybody who is actually doing this on, even on a hobby basis, not so much on a commercial basis can go in and get, uh, a- a- approvals on specific air spaces to fly, uh, at certain times, certain, uh, certain heights, certain distances, Um, basically you just put your submission in saying, this is who I am. You set up your own profile, kind of like with what you do when you register your car Well, you register your drone. Um, you put all the information in, thankfully they have apps now. And again, three, four years ago, they didn't have all this kind of high tech stuff. And you literally had to phone call them or email them and wait 90 days to even get approval. Oh, wow. They have a system where in most metropolitan areas, it'll take within a few minutes, maybe to an hour to get approval or denied. Um, Obviously, uh, thankfully downtown San Antonio, uh, is in an airspace where the majority of it is a, a class G airspace where you don't need to get authorized, uh, by the FAA or the air traffic control to, to fly. However, there are a lot of other rules you have to follow. You can't fly directly over people. You can't fly over private property that hasn't been approved to be able to fl- to be fly- flown over. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't fly above 400 feet. Um, and that's kind of interesting because one of our biggest first clients was to, uh, to document the construction of the Frost Tower back in 2017, and it, by far one of the that's coolest. So cool! Uh, it was by <laughs> all means. I mean, this is exactly what kind of resonated with the whole Tower of America. We yeah, that's crazy. Document this. That's nuts. Every yeah. two weeks, we go out, we'd fly the drone, and literally just get a full scan of everything that was going on for the two years that it took for that Frost Tower to be built. And after each month, we would put together kind of like a little highlight reel that we, you know, mm-hmm. then give to the developers and the mm-hmm. architects to give them an idea to all of their investors about this is what it looks like this is how it's changing downtown San Antonio's skyline but it gave us um it almost thrusted us into working with local law enforcement to work with uh air traffic control um all of the local helipads like the medical helipads over at Christus and over at Baptist to let them know that we're going to be flying X day on you know this time and doing this I mean, it it got to the point where, oh yeah, White Cloud, yeah, we know you guys. Yeah, it's totally cool. Oh, that's awesome. Thankfully, yeah. I mean, after all this time of communicating with these people and proving to them that we are here doing things responsibly and right, doing it the right way and legally, Mm -hmm. uh, it just gives you even more clout. And so it was was kind of interesting. There was one time, uh, a few months before the Frost Tower was almost completely done, uh, there was another drone uh, that came in um, and what they call uh, dive bombing and basically take the drone and they would fly it. And then they would fly straight down as if you're literally f- you know, free falling. Mm-hmm. And it's a cool perspective. You see a lot of these FPV drones. These pilots are just super crazy. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. but mm-hmm. Extremely dangerous, especially around critical infrastructure, such as a building like the frost Tower yeah. or any kind of building for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And, um, there was a few cops that were out there that, that found that, uh, that saw him doing it, but they couldn't find the operator. And, um, I was just parking, walking up here to Geekdom, and uh one of the guys noticed my shirt. I was wearing my White Cloud Drone shirt at the time, and he's like, uh, White Cloud, are are you guys, you know, are you the is one that's I like, I'm standing right here. I don't have a control on my end. I don't know who that is, but he keeps going up and down, up and down, and if he gets too darn close to that building, he is going to hit it, and it could break one of the windows if he hits it hard enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and call it in because I I I didn't figure that it would be you guys. You guys are, are thankfully, yeah. you're safe enough to be able to do this. Like, yeah. And then, it, then they asked, like, do you, do you have an idea of where this guy might be? And I said, you know, to be honest with you, with a lot of FPV drones at that point, they have to have line of sight. Uh, I mean, based on um, FAA rules, you have to have line of sight with drones at all time.
1: Oh, gotcha. But for the
2: connections that a lot of the FPV drones had at that time, two, three years ago, if that drone were to go behind some sort of barrier-like structure, you'd almost lose a connection. So there's oh, wow. a good chance that the guy's literally in front view yeah, doing his right thing. Yeah, right in front of it. And I just told him, look for a guy with goggles on because if he's that you know, FPV goggles, it's probably him controlling it and might want to have a few words on not doing what he's doing. And again, those are things, you know, if that person, even though he was doing it as a hobby and he wasn't doing it commercially, um, it's an extremely dangerous stunt to do. And it's it's just something that really could potentially tarnish the drone industry who are really trying to make this uh, a viable business model.
1: Yeah, that must be difficult because like y'all are doing like... And that stunt may be something that you would actually do for a client. But, um, you know, just the knowledge that me who does, and I don't make any money off this stuff, but I could go buy a drone and I can go and do that. That must be difficult because it could just ruin shoots for you.
2: It is. It is. Mm -hmm. And and ironically um, and thankfully now in the past uh, people, (laughs) and not not to throw Russia under the bus, but they are notoriously known for doing some things with their drones. Uh, they would strap bottle rockets to them. They would strap their dogs to them. They put their kids on them and they would fly their kids around. Really? They would do all of these things that you would like think about like, yeah, I would never do that. Oh, they did it. The Russians it. did it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. they're pushing. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, the <laughs> limits. So you see a lot of YouTube videos with a lot of these people doing some really crazy, very dangerous things with drones and the drone technology. And it almost kind of helped our local law enforcement, air traffic control, and FAA understand this is what people could do and fully capable of doing in the event that they have this kind of technology. So they're able to put a lot of squashing on it. Yeah. And uh, thankfully, now that local law enforcement are a little bit more attuned to how to approach Mm -hmm. a drone operator and ask for their certificate license Mm. uh, and also ask about who are you shooting for, why are you shooting, what are you shooting can I see your your FAA registration number? You know, all the things that you should have if you're actually operating legally in that airspace that you're attempting to fly in. Yeah, yeah.
0: correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the drones that are commercially available have like software or like firmware built into them to where if you're flying in a place where you're not supposed to be, it'll automatically like mm. keep you away from that. Right. Yes. So I guess as technology yeah, develops, cool. it's going to make, make it less easy for you to like break the rules mm. essentially.
2: Absolutely. You know, uh, it's a good point that you brought that up and that actually speaks into a lot of other kind of technology that's really emerging right now that it's being implemented in other kinds of industries, even like the uh, the autonomous vehicle industry where they call them geo fences. They're basically force fields. And government entities, uh, obviously helipads and airports and military uh, structure, military installations. They have these called geofence uh, borders. And so if you try to fly a drone in there, the app that's helping you control that drone blocks, it. it just stops it and forces it either to come down or land. So there's quite a few places downtown finally that have these so-called geofences. Now keep in mind that there's like anybody who knows how to code and how knows how to get in the back end and yeah. hack some things, there's a way to do that. Uh, the drone manufacturer, DJI, is a Chinese-made manufacturer. And so several years ago, this was, and it still pretty much is, the most popular drone manufacturer in the world, but mm-hmm. specifically here in the United States. A lot of sheriff offices and police departments and local law enforcement and, and first responders tend to use these drones because, we're one, affordable, two, easy to learn and, and quickly be able to get up and go – Uh, They're the most reliable. Sadly, they're still the only drone manufacturer that is the most reliable and best bang for your buck. And so there's been a lot of talk about trying to accelerate the government to come in and explain why they shouldn't be using a Chinese-made drone because there could be some hidden software in there that could be basically giving information back to the Chinese government that we just don't know. Hmm. So of course that, that rumor spread and sheriff offices and police departments like, Whoa, we're not going to use these guys anymore. And yeah. military stopped using it just a lot of things. But again, this is, this is how technology develops yeah. trial by fire, trial and error and learning, unfortunately through our mistakes. Yeah. That's
1: interesting. The, the, this would be my last question on drones, but uh, <laughs> the, did you ever do anything with drones that didn't have a camera attached to them? Like, did you ever race them or do anything like
2: that? <laughs> Great question. So, um, it, when my business partner at the time and I started the business back in 2016, that was actually original. Our original business model was to provide high quality drone applications, um, and not just the media component. Even though I had, uh, you know, a background in media production, mm-hmm. that's something that we certainly wanted to offer if and when it ever came through. But we kind of saw the bigger dollar signs coming from the drone applications that drone technology in 2016 could actually provide, thermography, um, orthomosaics, topography scanning, things that uh, architects, developers, the whole construction world could really, really utilize uh, in a much safer, efficient, and affordable way. Drones could provide all that. So we would hook up a LiDAR puck to it. We would um, put, uh, gosh, I, I can't remember the actual term of the technology at the time, but it basically penetrates uh vegetation for crops and farmers about 6 inches below the surface to indicate where the overwatering is or where the underwatering is or where the what? like it can give you all of these details <laughs> it's awesome. it's yeah it's so terminator like type yeah details it can give you so much and that was 4 years ago 5 years ago when we just started it. so i don't even know what's out there right now since i've kind of moved past the whole High end commercial drone applications.
1: Yeah, man, you really went deep on the drone technology and application. <laughs> I think, like, around that time, the most innovative thing I saw people do with drones was like attach bait to it and then, like, hold their fishing <laughs> pole and, like, oh, yeah, send it out and drop the <laughs> bait,
2: <laughs> which I was like, man, that's rad. But I didn't know you could do all that stuff with it. That's, yeah, that's pretty awesome. There was a guy, speaking of that, there's a guy, uh, I believe, up in Washington State who 3D printed an actual device where you hook it onto your just basic. $500 drone and it's basically a, a a bait dropper. So you hook your fish bait up, go out to the coast, drop it off, and then do your thing as a fisherman. That's awesome. It's very very cool stuff. Yeah,
1: it's it's crazy because like that the drone technology, it like it made things a lot like you were saying a lot safer because before humans would have to get that high up to take that photo either in a plane or helicopter or on top of a building. Or humans would have to take the bait all the way out there or something. But mm-hmm. that's, yeah, that's cool. We were even talking about that recently with that volcano uh, video that we saw. Oh, during, yeah. Uh, I remember I was like, man, I saw this sweet video. I'm going to tell Adam about it. And I went and told you, and you were like, yeah, dude, I read all about it. 12 <laughs> That was last and, month. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Old news, dude. He's uh, like, I was there. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So, But you got to travel a lot too, right? And I don't mean to... No, it's okay. It's okay. Right, because I, you, you've got to travel the world and do some really cool stuff with drones yeah, as well. Yeah,
2: totally. You know, the cool thing is um, I was actually in 2018 got hired by a Airbnb investor here in America who was buying up a ton of property over in Taiwan, and he was just Airbnb-ing his properties out in Taiwan, but he wanted an American influence of, of marketing and media. so. Mm-hmm. He basically just flew me out with him for a whole week out to, uh, out to Taiwan and we just filmed anything and everything that I thought as an American tourist would appeal to me if I were to actually travel to that country and just tour. Whoa. And so it was cool. He hooked me up with all of his properties and his condos and stuff and just had a great time, met a ton of awesome people and just literally fly the drone in and around the whole country and just document what I was able to see, what I thought was cool. And say, hey, make this look really, really cool. And I can do that. I can do yeah. it.
0: Yep. It was man. very cool. Was it so like
1: man, I have so many questions now. <laughs> when you when you uh fly a drone up like in especially in downtown San Antonio, like the view, the perspective that you get, it looks totally different. Like when I'm if I'm standing in Legacy Park and then you show me like, yeah, check it out from the drone footage and the drones directly above us, it just feels totally different. How was it in Taiwan. Had you been to Taiwan before? Never had. How was it experiencing Taiwan on the ground and then seeing it from
2: that high up? It's uh, it's mind blowing. You know, I I've traveled not a lot, but enough here in the United States to understand how our cities are built, just because of how old this country is, and you kind of see the the common denominators amongst all the architects and developers. But when you go to a country that's been around for thousands of years, and the culture has been around for that long too, and seeing how they preserve their old historical uh, monuments and their old historical buildings. And then build all of their new mega structures around it. It's uh, it's mind blowing. Um, Taipei one hundred one. Uh, that was probably the I think it is the third tallest building in the world. Uh, it's got a hundred and one stories, um, and it sits probably on the the southeastern tip of actual Taipei, the, the their capital. And there's a mountain on along the side where you can hike up. And uh, he and I were actually walking up the stairs. And it took us two and a half hours to walk up this this stair <laughs> uh, this the stair lift, basically, uh, this mountainside. And as we were going up, and this is probably maybe six or seven o'clock in the morning. We tried to do it before it got too hot in the day. There were groups of um, elderly folks doing yoga and doing exercises 100 feet up, 200 feet up, 500. We got up to about 800 feet up elevation-wise, just so it can be somewhat, you know, I don't want to say parallel, but somewhat eye level to the whole city skyline. And you see this huge mega structure of Taipei 101. The building just, I mean, it just sticks out <laughs> literally like 101 stories compared to like the next building, which was maybe 40 or 50 stories. Yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy. But we got the drone up and we just started flying around that whole darn city and just got some, yeah, just super, super cool shots. So mind blowing. Yeah, that is awesome. Um, So when, at what
1: point, so I, I want to go back to like talking about white cloud and um just you being a startup founder um what made you make the decision to go from like drones to pivot into like we're like a production company
2: market the geographical market that we are right here right now in and uh both my mom and dad live here in san antonio and this is uh, a city that i found that you know what i want to plant my roots here um and I figured I want to start my business here too. And having the friends and family that I have that I've met through Geekdom and through all of the people that I've grown up with here in San Antonio, I felt like this is the place to be. I don't want to go to LA. I don't want to go to New York. I don't want to go to Austin. I want to be here in San Antonio and grow my business the way that I thought would be you know, viable for me. And it was actually the market that told us after about two years that, yeah, we can make some really nice cash doing a lot of these high-end commercial uh, drone like applications, but they're all grand slams and grand slams don't happen every day or every week or even every month. Yeah. We just sure. weren't able to, we're able to, to sustain revenue stream, but we just weren't able to grow scale or even expand the way that we really wanted to. And of course, you know, we had to compete with, uh, the people who, uh, were growing out of the big tech centers out of you know Northern California and, you know, over in the Northeast, uh, where a lot of these drone companies that were, um, granted by the DOD uh, mm-hmm. to, you know, just be, tons of cash were just pumped into these, these companies to grow their business. And these larger companies were now starting to consume smaller companies. And at some point we thought maybe we can be, you know, consumed by one of these companies out of the East coast or even West coast. And we just never, never really picked up on that. yeah It was really uh, at the end of 2018, early 2019, when uh, my co-founder got uh, another job offer with another company and uh, just felt like, you know what, this might be something where I can just kind of steer this company into something that is a little bit more passion driven and just allow that to kind of take its ride. And then uh, spring of 2019, um, decided to figure, you know, we're going to still do drones, but that's not what we do. And looking at our, our books at that point, all of 2018, almost 60, 65% of all of our revenue was all media based, whether it be through the drone or through just traditional ground media. Yeah. And uh, thankfully, Elizabeth Reiser came on board um, as a contractor to help assist uh, in the spring of 2019 and summer of 2019, and then decided to make her full time in the early parts of oh well 2020 2020 yeah it's hard to say 2020 but <laughs> that was uh, a lot <laughs> uh, there was a lot in 2020 but uh, yeah just you know having her as a business development you know person not really having a lot of the creative uh, background that I had we perfectly complemented each other she knew how to talk to clients, acquire clients, retain clients. And I just knew how to produce. Mm -hmm. And this was the winning team that I had always kind of wanted. And from all of our friends and family, people was like, this is what you need. You don't need another Adam. You don't need another creative, even though that would help the bandwidth. You need someone to help you grow the business from the administrative side. And that's really when, um, you know, with Elizabeth being with The Boys and Girls Club prior to White Cloud, that was actually one of the clients that I had started out with as one of my biggest uh, production clients, uh, doing a lot of their event and gala marketing and highlighting and and storytelling. So that's actually how Elizabeth and I originally met, got her on board. She helped me grow the business, and yeah, we're we're a full-scale, a la carte video production company.
0: I love that, and I even say, I mean, like we would hear White Cloud drones, White Cloud drones a lot. And now that y'all are more focused on just like, you know, telling people stories, sharing stories and making high end video content, I haven't heard that in a while. And I think that's yeah. a good thing. People are now recognizing you as just like, you know, white clouds going to make dope videos, which is, which is super
2: cool. Cause y'all do. That's awesome, John. Definitely appreciate that. And, and again, I want to shout out to you guys too. I mean, you guys have given us the platform, the opportunity, and obviously the connections with all of the awesome people we've ever been able to work with over the past two, three, four, five years even. Uh, so, you know, hats off to gate them, uh, for giving us this opportunity and the, and the limelight that we've been playing in right on, man, right in the fields, dude. <laughs> um, so, at, at what point
1: did you, uh, or was there ever a time where you like looked at a video or a photo and kind of like, couldn't believe that you did that?
2: Wow. <laughs> I didn't think I would have any, uh, fast, uh, fastball questions, but this, that, that one's a good one. Um. Yeah. And this one's obviously recent. Um It's it's got to be the new Geekdom web video that that we helped produce for you guys. I thought you were talking about Scout. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> that one uh, that that's a whole other oh my vertical whole of, other, of a <laughs> movie. <laughs> <laughs> that goes without saying. Yeah.
1: That goes. I mean, yeah, I, the obvious knew that was going to be it. Yeah, yeah, you but, but a close number 2 is <laughs> No, but let's, yeah, let's talk about the website video.
2: Yeah, I I think um when I really try to process, obviously the question, but also process the amount of prep, time, people uh, on the planning stage and the production stage and even the post-production, even though it's just a three-minute video, I mean, that's, that's a lot of hard blood, sweat, and tears from everybody involved. You guys as Geekdom, us as a production company, all the people that we had on camera, and of course, everybody's eyes that had you know, to be used to then verify and validate this is a story that we want our company to showcase and highlight. And I thought that was something that, again, really resonated well with me, because that's something that we want to do. Uh, not to give away too much, but I know we're we're teasing the idea that we are going to be going through a whole rebrand to help make sure that we clean up our confusion of we're not just a drone company, we are a video production company. So telling the story of geekdom for the next decade uh, is really something that, again, hit us hard knowing that we need to tell our story. We need to say it right. We need to do it right. And we need to visually, you know, visually uh, and cinematically promote it in a way where it really speaks the volumes of what John just said, you know, we high end quality content. That's what we want to be known for. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I mean, like I've, I've, I've
1: done a lot of work with startups and I've been a part of like a lot of like ads or like video, like marketing or anything like that. We've done some stuff with Curry Boys, which is a lot of fun. Absolutely. You know? um, but that video uh, that you're talking about with the web, our website, that was a really man. That was like an emotional experience going through that because it's like I know everybody that that you interviewed. I've spent time with everybody. I've looked up to all of the folks that are in the video and. That's a story that I've wanted to tell but I just couldn't really articulate it. And the way that you put it all together was awesome. The questions you were asking, the just the way that you like chopped it all up and and put it in different in different places, it told such an awesome story. Um can you speak about like how do you how do you do that? How do you get like like if I tell you we need a website or we need a video for our website. That's going to tell the story for geekdom. And I need you to get Graham Weston, Lorenzo, me, and all these, Charles, everybody to talk about this. How do you like translate that into like, okay, I can talk to all these people and give you 90 seconds or or like a three minute. Right.
2: No, that's a solid question. I think that's something that uh, I've been able to at least learn over the The time that I've been trying to sharpen my own skills and understanding how to not just edit, but also produce in a way where it is a compelling story and it makes sense. It all connects. Um, Circling back to one of the original comments that I made, I do things in reverse. Uh, I actually listen for the music that I want to use to convey the message that I think that I want to have it conveyed. And so I'll do, you know, uh, just some, you know, some thought exploring and some listening exploring. So I'll just go on some, music site, and I'll just listen to a ton of music, and then start to literally download a few tracks that just kind of help me visually conceive everything that I want this video to tell, even though I haven't shot anything yet. Not the B-roll, I haven't shot the testimonials, or the narration, or even any of the graphics, the intros, the outros, any of that stuff. And so I'll have kind of a well of music that I want to be able to pluck and pull from, and then when we start to schedule out the people that we want to have on, um, Elizabeth and, and my team literally do a lot of uh, storyboarding and a lot of planning on what questions do we want to target? What one liner nuggets that we want to really be able to hone in on? What golden nuggets do we want to be able to pluck? And so when we go and shoot and we have these conversations like we are right now, uh, we try to be as authentic and genuine and very friendly. And, and John knows this dude because I know you've, you've helped us out a lot in a lot of video production work in the past, where literally getting someone just to open up and just be themselves has the most emotionally tying story in itself. They could be talking about rabbits chasing, horses has nothing to do with Mm -hmm. anything, but just the way they convey it and the way they have that conviction in their message. That's something that I can then translate into from the music that I've already kind of pulled and plucked from and then start to build the actual rough cut. Uh, The cool thing is, and I always just kind of, you know, tell Kate, our our digital media producer um, who helps and assists a lot in a lot of the video production that we're doing is everything is a puzzle. I mean, video production is a puzzle. And it's not been created yet. It's up to you to create it, and it's up to you to find the pieces and to create the pieces and then to connect them. Um, and then, of course, just have like a jamming soundtrack in the background just blaring because mm-hmm. yeah. that just totally gets you in the zone to paint the picture that you want and to be able to convey the matches through a video-produced content. Yeah, that's,
1: that's awesome. Because, I mean, like getting into um, – like if you wanted to get into photography or videography right now as a business, that's a really – like competitive industry and there are so many, like I see people on like Facebook or, or Instagram that are like, Hey, can you recommend a wedding photographer or, or a baby photographer or something? And it's just like 30 comments. Like, there's, <laughs> And and you look at them and they're all good. You know, like how do you differentiate yourself
2: from all the others? Love it. Solid question. We differentiate ourselves based off of our current clients. Our current clients and customers are the ones that will tell Future, current, or future clients and future customers if we're a good fit for them. We're not a good fit for everyone, and we recognize that. We are in a creative, subjective space. We know that our content that we produce, even though we pour our blood, sweat, and tears in it, not everyone will like it. Not everyone will appreciate it. Not everyone will even be willing to pay for it. Mm-hmm. But there are some who do. And so speaking to your point, Philip, when there's 30, 40, 50 people who like check this person out or check this person out. I think, and maybe Elizabeth could even, you know, give me a head nod on this. Most times people will pretty much to say, you need to go with this company because that person who knows who they're referring can make that stronger connection to the person that is asking. And so even though all 30 of those people are just solid photographers or videographers, it's the referrals that actually went over everything. We don't have a, a very robust social media presence, mm-hmm. we have stuff on there to at least show that we're alive, we exist, we mm-hmm. we produce this kind of content, but we are not so-called influencers of any sort. We're not trying to flood Instagram or TikTok or Facebook, but we definitely want to make sure people know who we are, what we do, if and when someone is a cheerleader for us out in the street saying, you guys have to check out White Cloud. They would be a perfect fit for what you're trying to go for and the budget that you have. And that's that's the people that we want to work with. It's kind of like that girlfriend that you guys first have, you know, in middle school. And I'm like, I don't want to date this girl unless she really likes me. Okay, well, does she like me? Okay, cool. She likes me. I'm going to go out with her then. Yeah, It's one of those things. I don't want to dance with someone who doesn't want to be danced with.
1: Yeah, Yeah. that mutual mm -hmm. acceptance of each other. Yeah, totally understand. Um, When you, uh, like, when I see a, a video that you've produced, I know that you've produced it because of, I don't know why I can't articulate it, but I. It's but got I,
0: that uh, that secret sauce. It does. It's got that
1: <laughs> that thing, and um, and so it's it's really cool to hear you know your process and and how you identify that. Um, how do you feel about like like when you first started doing this in like two thousand? like two thousand eleven is when you really started like getting deeper into it. When you first started doing this, there weren't a lot of videographers and photographers that. We're just like walking around. But now, like with Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, all these things, like the word videographer, it gets a little bit blurry, right? Because like Mm -hmm. now we've got like our phones that that have amazing technology. And if you have your phone and InShot or Video Leap or any one of these apps, you can just kind of throw something together. How do you feel about those things? Does that... Well, just how does it, I don't want to inform your answer. How do you feel about that?
2: Great question, but I want to kind of flip the question back to you guys. Have you ever flown a plane?
1: No. 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 I mean, on Grand Theft Auto, maybe.
2: (laughs) Have you ever driven a Formula One race car? No. Nope. Those are two modes of transportation, correct? Yeah. Two different ways of getting from point A to point B. Yeah. It's all about the skills and the training. doesn't matter what the tools you have. It all matters about the skills and the training. When I first started out in 2011, 2012, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what aperture was. I didn't know what f-stop was. I didn't know a lot of the things that cameras actually, basic basic functions on cameras, I didn't know what they did mm-hmm. until you started to learn how to just basically play with it and do it. YouTube University, Vimeo, all of those different social media platforms that literally teach you on just how to become more efficient and more effective at the tools that you have. It doesn't matter if you have a $100 camera or a, a, a million dollar camera. If you know how to use it and use all of the functions that it provides, then that's going to make you the best at what you can do. And that's kind of, you know, to answer your question, cameras are always going to constantly get better. The AI behind it, having all of the different kinds of things that are evolving and all the technology, it's always going to get better and somewhat easier. I just think that it's going to be cool for all of us that have grown through the process of the last 10 to 20 years in this video production world where video is king on every platform, on every medium, that basically people that are 18, 19, 20 years old right now that know how to cut and edit a video on their phone all because of their Instagram story or something that they just want to post on social media, they understand how to piece the puzzle together. Now let's give them a tool that can get them there faster and give them more accessories to really enhance their creative skills. And that's yeah. again to something that I think over time is al- always going to get better. That yeah, that's a really interesting
1: answer because like there's it's like two parts. One one part is that like you you learn the skills of how to use how to operate the tool, and then the other part is that you have to be creative to then like like inject your creativity into this tool. But now with the tools becoming more accessible, you get much more creatives bringing their perspectives and their transitions and all that kind of stuff. That's really awesome. Um, when I, you know, growing up, the way I got into photography is my grandfather was a photographer. So it was my father. And, you know, I, uh, I remember my, so my grandfather, he traveled the world and he would come back with all these awesome photos and, um, and, and, when I was really young, I remember looking at, like, little, like, slides, you know what I mean, on, like, a projector. And then he had a dark room in his house, in this old house, North Flores, and, like, he would, like, dip it and do the whole process. Well, then I started getting into it. I started shooting photos. Digital cameras came around. And then I would show him, like, yeah, let me show you how I edit. I got this Photoshop from my computer teacher. And, like, check this out. And I'm showing him all this stuff. And he never really, like, caught on to that. Right, like he would, he would shoot um, in digital. It was all JPEG, you know, and and he wouldn't really get into like like really editing too much. How do you? Um, so I feel like there's a generation of photographers that got left behind from doing it in like their bathroom without a window or a closet and and all that stuff, which was a beautiful art, like to be able to edit that way. But then when Photoshop and everything came around. Like I said, I feel like there were some that were left behind. How do you stay on top of the latest and greatest hardware and software?
2: Direct answer, doing what we're doing right now, talking about it. The only way that I'm ever going to understand what the next best thing is to help explore and help amplify my creative skills is simply just talking about it with other creatives, other people who are just passionate about it. Uh, my mother is 73 years old. She's a painter. She's always been an artist. She's always been a, a, a sculpturist, And I got her an iPad with an Apple Pencil two years ago. She won't put it down. She no, it. No. It's awesome. And now she still paints. She still does her, all of her old traditional media. Yeah. But it's just another way to express her creative skills. And I think that's something that I hope, you know, I am i don't get lost in the generation. I hope my generation isn't a lost generation as this creative exploration and this technological advancement of being able to advance it uh, forces me to the point where I get lost or I get left behind. Yeah. Um, I just I, I love hanging out with people just to talk shop. I, I like spitballing with my colleagues and and just talking about what the next best cool things are. The camera technology that's about to come out, where basically you can change your f-stop in post. You can do a lot of things that I know. Like what you can change. Wait, what? what? You can change what? Um, <laughs> Just all of these cool things where we're dreaming about and talking about and yet it's not available yet, but it will be. And I think if we can become stewards and tenants and teachers of the creative arts, then it's only going to help the younger generation to force us to become more creative, which is all what we want. Yeah,
1: yeah, that yeah, I, I remember, you know shooting with a film camera and that, cause when I was getting into it, that was like right when the transition was happening, you know, you could get, what was great is you can get film cameras really cheap, but you know, right. You spend $500 <laughs> to get a 1.2 megapixel digital camera. Uh, mm-hmm. But, but what was so cool about that was like when you would shoot film, you know that you're limited to like those 24 or 30 shots that you have choose wisely. You got to choose yeah. wisely. And, and, and also you're going to print the whole role to get like those few shots that are really, you know, the ones that are keepers. And so I remember thinking like, well, when you go to digital, you can take as many as you want and it's so much less waste, you know what I mean? And, and, um, and kind of like, you know, your mother where, you know, you give her an iPad and a pencil, maybe she's trying things that she wouldn't have wasted a canvas on, you know what I mean? So that, yeah, that's really cool. Um, what's been your biggest challenge starting up your company and getting to where you're at now? Scaling,
2: scaling. I mean, bringing on Elizabeth in 2019 um, has helped me understand how we can actually operate a creative agency in San Antonio. I mean, where this city is not really built for entrepreneurs, even though it's a whole lot more built for entrepreneurs now than it ever has been. um, I think it's a beauty to be able to literally survive and weather the 2020 pandemic, get to the point where we are, Uh, We've survived five years. I mean, we're in the top 1% of all startups. We've actually made it. Look, Ma, we made it five years. (laughs) Um, And we're actually able to pay our employees enough money to be able to live and thrive in San Antonio. And scaling is probably going to be the the most difficult and toughest part just because there's so much talent here in San Antonio and it's hard to find them. It's hard to get them. And I, and I know Elizabeth will laugh about this, um, I was a survivalist. When I first started the business, I we were just chasing the dollar. We'll chase anybody and everybody who's willing to give us a dollar for whatever service we thought that we were good at providing. Yeah, And it got to the point where it felt like we were just freelancers under an agency name. And not to narc on freelancers, because I was one for a long time, I wanted something more. Yeah. I, I wanted... I wanted a team to go to battle with. I didn't want to be that lone soldier just to, to do my own thing, even though there's a lot of people out there that are just killing it as freelancers. I wanted something that can provide more to more. And, um, yeah, just trying to find the talent and trying to be able to retain the talent and be able to afford that talent in a growing economy such as San Antonio. That's probably been our biggest obstacle.
1: Yeah, that is that is hard. And, and you know, we... We've had a lot of founders on our podcast, and and that's that's a common theme. It's hard for it all to make sense because, like the to the founder, of course this makes sense. Here's the problem, and here's my solution. But how do I get paid for it? <laughs> you know, that's, absolutely, that's difficult. Um Adam, it's been awesome having you on. Oh. I really appreciate you you coming and and joining with us at um, on the Geekdom Underground. Um, my last question for you is: What advice would you give? to an aspiring creative that wants to turn their hobby into a business? Um, Or what what advice do you wish that you would have gotten when you were making that transition?
2: I'll start that answer off with a quote from Tom DeLonge. Blank 182 Angels and Airwaves guy, if you guys don't know. Um, Do what you want and do it honestly. People will see right through you if you don't. And I think that's one thing that I found out very quickly trying to do things that I thought that I could do honestly and all just because I was trying to chase the dollar and chase the wrong dollar. That's something that quickly got thrown back. It's like, you're not the guy. And I think that's one thing that again, I I know I blow a lot of sunshine at Elizabeth, but Elizabeth has really kind of helped me understand who I am as a creative and as a business owner and as someone who's trying to grow and scale a company that I can be proud of in my elder state um, for all of you that are starting out, young entrepreneurs. Doesn't matter if you're young, old, middle aged. If you're just starting out as an entrepreneur and wanting to do something in a creative space, just do everything honestly. Do what you want and do it honestly. That's awesome. Yeah,
1: yeah, that was great. And and solid shout out to Elizabeth and all the operators out there <laughs> that, that keep you grounded. <laughs> yes, you know? because that that's interesting too. Like when you have a creative. And you ask that question, like, who are you? It's such a difficult thing to, (laughs) exactly. It's like, well, who do you want me to be? Or (laughs) or you answer with a question or something. Mm. But yeah, that is awesome. Uh, Well, Adam, it's been real. Thank you so much for coming on the Geekdom Underground podcast. Mr. J.R.G., if you would, sir, please
0: take us home absolutely this is an amazing conversation thank you for joining us and elizabeth um just want to give you a chance
2: to shout out a website how do people find out more about white cloud sure uh whitecloud.productions you guys can check us out check out some of uh, our most local and recent work that we've done but also uh, an easy way to be able to connect with us if you think that we would be a good fit for you know sharing and, and broadcasting your story I love it. And if you've seen any of our geekdom stories, especially the
0: one about our boy Skelt, that was all done by White Cloud. (laughs) So amazing work. With very little post-production. That was like within two (laughs) hours. But yes, it's a
2: fun, silly video. Definitely check it out. Well, we appreciate
0: y'all tuning in. We'll see y'all next week. Thanks for uh, hanging out with us. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate it.